0: Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Louther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views
1: of the hosts and the guests
0: are their own. Welcome back to another exciting episode of NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have with us Mark Peters. Let me rephrase that. Dr. Mark Peters, who is the Executive Vice President for National Laboratory Management and Operations at Battelle Memorial Institute. And of course, he is responsible for oversight of the Department of Energy Labs that are managed by. Batell, he is of course a former director at the Idaho National Labs, and as we were talking about before the show, he is a geologist instead of a nuclear engineer, which um, I found pretty interesting. I don't know if I, uh, Mark, I didn't tell you this ahead of time, but you know, I would I went to school at uh, Arizona State, yeah, and ASU has a great geology program. And all of my family is in in the oil and natural gas business. I'm originally from Houston, so everybody's in oil and gas and my ambition as a young man was to be a petroleum engineer and okay. or sorry a petroleum geologist and go hunt uh oil around the world. That was sort of my goal. Of course, I ended up being you know an international relations political scientist instead. But, uh, I, you know, I, I think I took a my second or third calc class and, and I was like, man, I just really don't like this. <laughs> so, yeah,
1: right, uh, right, right. well, I, I, you know, I think uh, all of us who go into geology probably at one point think we're <laughs> going to go into the oil and gas business, right? That's kind of why you that's where I thought too. Look at then, look at me. So, there you go.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, that, and it was funny you said you're, you're uh, you got into because you know it's for those of you that are not familiar with how the labs work for a geologist to run a lab is pretty unusual Mm. and so we were talking about how how you got into this business and you came in through yucca mountain and i actually have a cousin who works at yucca mountain and who has worked on the the facilities you know building the facilities uh at yucca mountain so uh it's uh Pretty interesting. Yeah. It's a strange world. It's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon.
1: Right, right. There you go. There you go. Well, it's, it's, well, first and foremost, it's great to be with you. But I would also say that that was my entry point, as we discussed. And um, um I was involved in the underground underground testing program there for the explore, for the studies facility, which was just it was it was a great great part of my career. Really, really fun.
0: So you're at Battelle now. <clears throat> you're one of the senior executives at Battelle, and one of the big questions that I think is on the minds of some is Battelle is this sort of, it's a different entity than say Honeywell, which runs the Kansas city national security site. So what is exactly Battelle? Is it a company? Is it a, a nonprofit? I, I'm, you know, can you clarify for folks what it is?
1: Yeah, you bet. You bet. So, so we're a nonprofit research and development company. Um, we're based in Columbus, Ohio, and we have operations at various places across the US, including at the laboratories. And we can talk more about the lab portfolio, I think, as we go through this. But so again, nonprofit s and organization. We were established in the mid 20s by the will of Gordon Battelle. And and then soon thereafter, his mother Annie Battelle also contributed dollars. So the dollars were provided to. He was a metallurgist, and a philanthropist, and and deeply committed to education. So we were created as a nonprofit to do science and technology in support of societal questions. And then our profits are reinvested in STEM and philanthropy. I got so you. so that that that's kind of that's kind of our core mission. So. Um, we've traditionally done a lot of contract research for the government, uh, as well as industry, and we continue to do that. Uh, and my counterpart, uh, the, the, other executive vice president manages that portfolio, but then we've been in the, involved in the management and operation of national labs, starting in the 1960s with Pacific Northwest, the, the precursor to Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. And the, and then the portfolio has grown over time. So, so, so there's two sides of the business that sort of applied science and technology contract research side, and then the lab side.
0: Now, the labs are operated under what's called a GoCo model. Can you explain <clears throat> what that means and how that operates? Because, And, you know, this has evolved <clears throat> over time for the labs. What is that exactly?
1: Yeah, so, uh, First, a couple of definitions. We'll get back to GOCO and government-owned, contractor-operated. But we all the labs, not just in DOE and NNSA, but in DHS as well as DoD and other spaces, are f- f- federally funded research and development centers (FFRDCs) as defined by the law. Um, but the government-owned, contractor-operated model, the GOCO model, really came out of the Manhattan Project, right? So we we spooled up we spooled up this tremendous S capability. Uh, to support the war, the war effort during World War II. And then afterwards, you had Vannevar Bush's seminal and, and other seminal work that established the importance of maintaining that sort of r and ecosystem as we went forward. So the national labs were part of what grew out of that. But it was recognized at that time that it was important for purposes of attracting the right kind of folks in, into the system, et cetera, that it was more effective to make them contractor operated, we could attract a different kind of talent, uh, compensate in a different way, etc. Uh, so it was a public service model, to be clear. So companies operated these labs for basically free. I mean, very, very small nominal fees to operate them, but it's 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 been it's been sustained. So this model continues to this day with. 16 of the 17 DOE NSA labs are are government-owned contractor operated.
0: So would you say that the, you said the model works, is there, is the advantage, because, you know, I spent much of my career as a DOD civil servant, so I understand the civil service. And I could certainly understand why you would not want to use that uh, personnel model and why it would probably not be the best for bringing in Right. good engineering and science talent. Are there other benefits in the, as you see it besides your ability to bring in the right people and be able to hire them and pay them? And it, what other benefits are there?
1: Well, I would say what you also have is the benefit, and it's still related to talent, um, is the ability for a particular company or entity <clears throat> who's involved uh, to be able to reach back more broadly within their broader corporation to bring additional talent in, right? So right. whether it be the University of California, uh, Battelle, uh, Honeywell, you know, it, no matter who, who we're talking about here, it's that broader reach. And there's also flexibility uh, in terms of being able to bring additional resources and, and explore other ways of, of perhaps funding facilities and things like that. But to be clear, it's a partnership with the government. That's always been the model. Um, And it doesn't work unless there's a close partnership between the government and and the contractor. Um, And and that tends to work.
0: And so what would you say if you were to look at the the system as it operates, what would you say would be the biggest downside
1: of it? Um, It's always um, I would say, you know. Well, the, uh, from my perspective and Battelle's perspective, I think we're in it for the for the public service, right? I, I mean, yes, we do get uh, a fee for, based on performance of the laboratory, but, but I think it's important to always remember that these labs are crown jewels. And so I think we need to be in it for what we're providing to the nation. Um, yes, we should be fairly compensated, but I think it's always important to maintain that philosophy. Um, you know the other part of it is that partnership between the government and and the, and the contractor and the laboratory. Uh, the government needs to continue to to remind we need to always remind each other what the roles are, right? So the government's supposed to tell us what what needs to be done, and then we're we're about the how. Okay, so go go maintain the nuclear stockpile. Uh, labs, you have a role in that. You tell us how you're going to go do that. And it's, of course, an iteration, but it's when things get complex, it's when we, we don't, we, we've, we, we sort of stray from our roles. Yeah. Um, and labs aren't responsible for making policy, right? Uh, we, we, we do S&T, and it certainly informs policy, but it's not our job to make policy. It's also not, not our job to define what we need to do. That's the, that's the government's job.
0: Well, now let me put you in a difficult position <clears throat> by asking a challenging question I'm sure you don't want to answer. And that you, you mentioned policy. And not making policy. And, you know, as I've interacted, because I've spent much of my career interacting with Livermore and Los Alamos and Sandia and the design labs, and they've always been very careful and meticulous not to talk about policy or to advocate. And I guess I wonder, are we moving into a, a time now where... The circumstances with Chinese advancements we just saw yesterday the the Chinese now have more ICBM uh, delivery capabilities than than the U.S. does. Uh, Are we at a point now where the labs may need to to speak up a bit to because they know better than others the state of our stockpile, the needs that we may have for technical purposes? Is you know it are the time, the time so dynamic that, that the labs may need to take an unusual step?
1: Um, Well, I would say, I would say that uh, these are complex times. We've certainly lived through complex times throughout our history. Um, Let me reemphasize, we don't make policy, but there is plenty of mechanisms that are in place for us to be able to have conversations with, with, with the executive branch, with with the Congress, and with other stakeholders, and we're certainly relied upon. Lab leadership is certainly relied upon for that objective sort of that that information. Right? We provide information to inform it, um, but I don't necessarily see a, a, a need for a strong shift in any way because it's already it's already happening, um, and there's mechanisms in place. I mean, you of course know about of course the three the three weapons labs directors. Do their annual their annual view on the stockpile and the effectiveness of the stockpile. That's 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 more visible. But there's 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 really constant dialogue uh, between the lab leadership and and the federal federal leadership, including the political appointees, and say NSA, for example, as they think through strategy and as they think through policy. So I, I don't feel like you need to really change much there. Um, we don't, you know, it's not our job to lobby, nor is it our job to set policy, but but we're, I feel really good about the open transparent communications.
0: All right. Excellent. Thanks. So let me then <coughs> shift gears. The labs do quite a bit of work on non-nuclear nonproliferation. Can you give us some sort of an overview of what those what the labs do and what it's sort of what are they driving at trying to achieve with their non-pro efforts?
1: Yeah, there there there's a broad set of activities and there's a there's multiple labs that are involved and it's not just of course Sandia, Livermore and Los Alamos have very active programs and that's built upon their history in the nuclear weapons space because we we have these premier labs that are working on, you know, design of nuclear weapons that provides an expertise to be able to understand how how to how to manage and and be able to monitor what other countries are doing in that space, and so it's a natural progression for, for a for for a weapons lab to be able to have a strong nonproliferation program, and that would include everything from being able to um, sense, detect, um, uh, develops th- d- develop safeguards technologies for safeguarding facilities. Uh, it's 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 all over the board. A lot of work uh, with uh, Export control in those areas and whatnot. So, so if you know, if for those who speak NSA, uh, a lot of support to the Defense Nuclear Nonproliferation Program, NA20, um, but also a lot of work in counterterrorism, counterproliferation. So, NA, NA80 for those who can who speak NSA. Um, but it isn't just the weapons labs. To be clear, because of the nexus between civil nuke and nuclear weapons and nonproliferation. Other labs like Pacific Northwest, like Oak Ridge, like Idaho, uh, Savannah River, uh, all also have very active non-proliferation programs, and a lot of that grew out of a nuclear engineering capability that was perhaps more civil nuke, civil nuclear focused. But because of that nexus, and because of the complexity, you really need all the all the capabilities that all those labs bring to it. So it's 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 an important contributor. Uh, to the nation, to the NSA portfolio when you talk about the NA-20, NA-80 space.
0: Now, you mentioned Idaho National Labs, and I, I know mm-hmm. you were the director there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've actually had the chance, you know, I visited the uh, the reactor there. It's, it's, okay, uh, it's a, you know, Idaho Falls, great town. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this. I was listening to Joe Rogan. Uh, yeah. I think he's the number one podcaster out there now. And he had Peter Zihan on, who is the author of a really interesting book called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. So he's kind of a futurist forecaster who looks at trends. And he was asked about the role of, of nuclear power as sort of a cleaner fuel. And one of the things he said was that we, you know, nuclear is really not all that viable because – All we have is, you know, lots of waste that we store, but we don't reprocess and we we, we can't solve this problem. There's no technical solution really on the horizon right now. Can you maybe speak to that? Because it was one of those things that it piqued my interest, because as I understand it, that's that's not really accurate. It's it's politics more than technology that plays the, the role here. So can you speak to that, especially with your Yucca Mountain experience?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, 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 Adam, I would say what you said, I'll get to back to just reemphasizing your point. It isn't it, it's policy. It's not science. And, and, and let's let's go there. Uh, I guess the first thing I would say is having grown up through civil nuclear, you won't be surprised for me. to. And having been the director at Idaho, you won't be surprised that I'm going to say that nuclear is an important part of our not only our current portfolio, but our future portfolio. If we're serious about climate change. Uh, we better be thinking about nuclear as part of part part of the part of the suite of things that we do to address that. Uh, and and yes, the, the the questions that always come up uh, are cost, of course, uh, and then the nexus with weapons and proliferation always comes up. Uh, but 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 handling the spent fuel and the waste is the other aspect. So let's talk, that's the one I know you want to talk about more. So 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 yes all the all the units that operate today and those that would be operated in the future produce spent fuel uh and you can really think about a couple let's you know there's different ways of disposing it I mean back in the day we talked about shooting it into space burying it in glaciers uh but in the end the consensus of the community was if we're not going to reprocess we're going to bury it in deep geology um so that's where Yucca Mountain was the program that ultimately the United States pursued. Other countries in Sc- Scandinavia in particular are, are very far along in developing re- underground repositories for their spent fuel. So you can actually, uh, from a scientific perspective, if you find the right geology and the right packaging to put the spent fuel in, you can do it and you can do it safe.
0: And why, um, why don't we reprocess?
1: So some countries do. Uh we certainly did at one time and we were spooling up to do commercial reprocessing back in the 70s and at that time president carter put out an executive order three mile island was 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 happening around that time uh and there was also concerns about the nexus with proliferation of material that could make weapons so if you reprocess you can produce streams that yes, could be weapons usable. So you need to safeguard it, et cetera. So the bottom line was, is there was the proliferation concern and then the economics didn't work because when Three Mile Island happened, we were, we were, I think this country was viewed as going out of business and things in civil nuke. we were going to shut our plants down. So, so President Reagan overturned that, but by the time he did there, the economic case didn't make sense. So our policy, U.S. policy, Nuclear Waste Policy Act as, and as amended is, what we call once through, meaning spent fuel into underground geology. So we, our policy right now says to go do that. There is nothing that precludes scientifically and technically from us being able to reprocess. Technologies exist. We're working on even more advanced technologies in the R&D space. But it's it's really a policy conversation that hinders our ability to, uh, to reprocess here.
0: Now, could you talk just a little bit, because this is something we've never talked about before on Nuclecast, could you talk a little bit about what would reprocessing mean? What would we do with that spent fuel?
1: Yeah, so we, we would take the spent fuel. So, so the spent fuel is still about 95% for the commercial fuel. That's what I'm talking about here. It's still 95% uranium enriched to, let's call it 3 to 5% enrichment, 235 over 238. And, 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 but there's some higher actinides, so you've got, you've got plutonium, Neptunium, higher actinides, and then you've got a lot of fission products. I think cesium, strontium, iodine, technetium, etc. So you would take that that rod, chop it up, recover the uranium. Um, depending upon the reactor that you're going to put it in, you might want to keep the actinides because you could you could certain reactor types can actually take that as fuel and burn that as well. But you're recovering, let's call it, the uranium that's still got a lot of energy content in it. You're managing the actinides probably through a different reactor recycle and then you've got the fission products that you still have to manage as a waste so to be clear there is no there is no perfect world where you don't need some kind of disposal there's still a waste stream that comes out of it but you're reusing the uranium and all the energy content that still remains to make additional fuel so it's 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 a it's a sustainable way of doing it uh the other aspect of it is, is, is the question of, is there enough for uranium? Do we need to recycle? Um, there's plenty of uranium, so the economics don't necessarily work there either. Um, so that, those are the kinds of conversations that, that, that we go through. So it's a combination of policy and economics that, that drive the decisions.
0: Now it's time we have to take a quick break. So if you'll uh, hold with me over the break, I want to ask one. I'm going to give you the setup here. So I want to talk stockpile stewardship when we come back. So thanks for joining us, and we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the Anilog Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Okay, we're back on Nuclecast and we're talking with Mark Peters, the executive vice president at Battelle, responsible for the management of the national labs. So I asked you before the break about stockpile stewardship. Now, given, you know, sort of the yesterday's release that the Chinese have more delivery capabilities for their ICBMs. You know, the Russian threats of nuclear use, just we seem to be in a world where the role of nuclear weapons is growing increasingly important and particularly for our adversaries that the North Koreans have said that they're they plan to have the same size and capability for their arsenals. The United States, the South Koreans have said it may be time to go nuclear so do you think our current stockpile stewardship approach that's been around for you know several decades is still the right approach or is it time to rethink what we've been doing?
1: Well, I actually I actually think NSA, the Nuclear Weapons Council and Department of Defense and the administration, not just this one, the previous one and this one are are. are are assessing the evolving threat. It's certainly a a rapidly evolving threat. You've articulated some aspects of it, um, but the approach to sort of deterrence from an integrated threat perspective. Uh, So that policy is evolving, and I think it's evolving in the right way. And that's translating into NNSA leadership right now, you know, sort of Evolving their strategy with it. So I actually feel confident that stockpile stewardship, it can't be static. It has to evolve, but I feel like it's keeping up with the evolving threat, threat environment, as well as the policy framework that we have to support. So I, I'm feeling good about it. I, you know, the production missions, uh, you, you've heard a lot about, you know, pit production, ramping up pit production, being involved at Los Alamos. Uh, we're involved at Los Alamos uh, with the contract down there. Uh, so spending a lot of time in the lab, the lab's doing, I think, a good job. It's, it's a challenge, uh, to ramp up pit production. Uh, and then you, of course, have got additional capability that's being explored at Savannah River as well. So the production mission, I think, is, 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 I think, ramping up properly. There's a lot of work to do, a lot of infrastructure to, to build and a lot of work to do, but I think the focus there is appropriate. But if you look into the NNSA strategic plan, there's a big focus on, the importance of S and and the importance of continuing to be cutting-edge science, and and you know, the weapons labs in particular uh, on on the nuclear weapons side, I think I think the lab directors are constantly in dialogue with NSA about that. And, and you, you know, examples. I mean, you know, you've of course got advanced computing uh, that 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 we continue to be a world leader in. Um, it, fastest computer in the world right now is at Oak Ridge. Um, and 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 th- and that kind of capability supports the broader nuclear weapons enterprise as well. Um, we've talked about nonproliferation, but let's stay on weapons. Um, you know, the discovery at NIF—that's a science machine—and uh, some of those fascinating discoveries that have come out on, on fusion are just—they're—they're they're amazing. Uh, and and the, I'm I'm sure I'm sure they're doing a lot to informing stockpile stewardship, but they're also doing a lot of interesting things about just the science of fusion and, and the importance of federal investment. Um, so, I think the dialogue with investing in the infrastructure, maintaining the scientific expertise, is happening. We just got to make sure we balance production with maintaining that sort of science-based stockpile stewardship approach. And, and I actually think that the leadership at NSA is is uh, balancing that uh, the, balancing that quite well. And there's, as you've seen, there's a lot of resources. You know, we're getting getting a lot of funding. Um, that's allowing us to expand, uh, increase capability to keep up with the evolving threat.
0: So this then brings to mind, uh, as I look at the the nuclear enterprise and sp- spend time, you know, at you know at Kansas City, for example. I live in Kansas City and spend time down there, and they, you know, they're at full capacity, and they are, right. you know, they are trying to find all the right people, you know, they built a facility that they didn't think they would, could, could possibly use. And now they've outgrown it. And they're looking at more space. And as we look at, you know, Los Alamos and trying to build, you know, their pit production capability and the challenges there, I I wonder if given the strategic circumstances you know, we had to dramatically ramp up our development and fielding of new warheads, new capabilities. Do you see that the complex could respond fast enough or are the const- would we have to really pull off the constraints that have made some of these challenges the challenges they actually are?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I do think we can respond. Uh, let's talk about what's the. It, it's currently not not. I'm going to make a generalization. Now, there's probably specific areas where this isn't the case, but there's a lot there's a lot of funding and resources coming into the system. I would say our big one of our one of our key challenges is the people. And you touched on you touched on this a little bit, right? Uh, training training the next generation. And being able to attract them into into what's an exciting mission, but uh, and then and then retaining them, and and particularly in this, at these particular times with the job market the way it is, it's very competitive. Uh, you know, we've actually had a lot of success working with NSA over the past twelve to eighteen months on really trying to do a lot of uh, great work in terms of compensation approach, et cetera, so that we can try to do the, do a do as good a job as we can as attraction retaining, but we've got to develop pipelines across the board. It's not just engineers and scientists; it's craft labor. Um, it, it's, it's, it, it, it wants for an integrated workforce plan, which it, it is. It, it's being. It's sort of in development and evolving a, as we speak. But each of the site, each of the plants and sites and labs have their own set of stories about. About how are we going to manage all this? How's it going to be integrated? How are we going to do it on time, on schedule? And how are we going to find the people? Uh, at Los Alamos, how are we going to get them up and down the hill? Um, where are they going to live? Uh, all, all really r- challenges that that we're addressing, but th- they're, they're real. And so that's, that, that, that's a big deal at Los Alamos in particular. We're talking about it all the time. The lab leadership's all over it, and the, the board's having a lot of dialogue with them about it.
0: Yeah, and, and when you have to go to, let's say, university recruiting, and you yeah. say, hey, we're from Los Alamos, we're from PNNL, we're from KC, uh, we can't tell you what you're going to do, but trust us. Yeah. It's really exciting. That can be a, yeah, a, a yeah, challenge. <laughs>
1: Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, Adam. but yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would also say the other thing I would say is our missions our best retention tool.
0: Oh, for sure. So,
1: so if we can actually, if we can actually get folks in the door and get them the proper clearances, and there's ways, right? You can bring them in and have them work on more open science stuff as they wait for their clearance. Even the open science stuff is a great retention tool. But once you get involved in, in working on, in the nuclear weapons complex, yeah, it's. I mean. It's fascinating work, but it's just so, so important for the nation. Um, so, so, you know, we certainly can compensate well, but I think once people get in, they're like, wow, this is amazing uh, and important. So,
0: Now, we're, we're unfortunately at the end of the show, but I wanted to give you sort of a last word. As, as, as you think about what you would want our listeners to take away from our discussion today – what do you think is the most important thing that, that they would walk away with?
1: Well, I think first and foremost, you're not going to be surprised to hear me say this, that the, the importance of the national laboratories broadly to the nation's uh, S&T ecosystem and also the importance of us in, uh, the labs in addressing challenges in energy security, uh, w- w- nuclear weapons, et cetera cyber and the evolving threat environment and everything that goes with that, the labs are so important to that. So I think continued sustained support for facilities and, and the people in the programs is key. And and also that you've got, you've got 10s of 1000s of people at these laboratories that are quite frankly, patriots, who who are working who are working on on these problems, and are dedicated to the mission, and are doing everything they can to protect this nation.
0: All right. Mark Peters, thanks for joining us. It was, yeah. it was good to have you.
1: Adam is great. I really appreciate it. Good to, it's good to spend time with you.
0: All right. Well, thanks uh, to you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode of Nuclecast, and we will see you next time. So, Mark Peters, it was an interesting discussion. It's always, at least to me, interesting to hear how sort of senior leadership See some of these issues and some of the dynamics that they have to deal with that, you know, when you're sitting, you know, in the trenches in this, you know, fight to uh, build an effective nuclear arsenal or uh, build, you know, modern micro reactors or wherever you sit sort of in the labs and you don't have to look across all of that political and financial space. And you can just be really passionate about what you do, and then to have to go up and look at the much broader sphere that's uh, you're operating in—that's always sort of an interesting thing to hear from folks. And so Mark gave us that that view, and sort of where he has to weigh all of those big questions and be careful because of the, you know, the politics and what all's going on. And so it was a great interview. And I, I enjoyed it and, and thought it was, uh, you know, quite informative. This has been a production of the ANWHA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington. And this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Kronthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NucleCast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.